You're listening to Clinchy's Corner on ABC Grandstand. Towards Mundy from Switkowski, he's got it. Mundy marks a very acute angle. If anybody could, David Mundy can. Akers, two long kicks from goal, plays on into the corridor, dangerous ball works out well, Mundy doesn't break stride, through the 50, goes for goal, the veteran drives it right through the middle. Hello and welcome to Clinch's Corner, I'm Matt Clinch. A chance for us to catch up with one of the legends of the AFL competition. He's the game's record holder for the Fremantle Football Club. 354 games and he'll be 37 next year when he starts his 19th season in the AFL competition. We chat to David about the key to his longevity. Yeah, I don't think there's a silver bullet, you know, which identifies you know, a key critical element that I've focused on or been particularly good at. Um, I think I've obviously been very lucky with injury and form and things like that throughout. But um, you know, doing the little things well, you know, executing basics on repeat for 18 years is a really difficult thing to do. And I feel like I've been able to do that to the point now where I um, really understand you know, both my game but my body. To what Fremantle need to feature in September? As simple as it sounds, it's about executing the fundamentals and, and basics of our game. It's looking after the ball when we've got it, not giving it back as much as we did this year, you know, coming out of stoppage or, or contest wins. And, um, and then really simply trying to kick straight uh, in front of goals. We were uh, quite horrendous in that area this year, quite often kicking a lot more points than we did goals within games. And, you know, a lot of those were, were quite achievable and quite gettable goals. Ultimately, it cost us a couple of games. David Mundy, welcome to Clinch's Corner. Tell me to start with how different is the in-season, David Mundy, to the off-season? Now you've had a couple of weeks off. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, always preparations kind of uh, ongoing in the back of my mind. We're currently um, in the second week out of our season. Unfortunately, we're not playing football in September again. But yeah, really quickly get back into full-time dad mode, making lunch boxes, organising the school drop-offs and pickups, and uh, doing a bit of gardening around the house at the moment. So it's a nice little. Uh, mental break. Does the disappointment of missing out on finals burn? Are you someone who watches footy in the background? Do your kids drag you down that path? Uh, yeah, I've watched more and more football, I guess, over the last couple of years. One of my boys, um, Hudson, who's six years old, he's, um, loves it, absolutely loves watching it. We'll sit down and watch a full uh, footy game with me and then um, you know, demand to go out the back and have a kick in the breaks and after the game and things like that. So, um, yeah, thoroughly enjoying um, that aspect of it. And, yeah, can never can never fully switch off out of it when um, when football's still going. I still thoroughly enjoy uh, enviously watching on in finals action and, and seeing how teams and particularly individuals, obviously been in football a long time myself, so I have a lot of friendships across the AFL now. So seeing how some particular guys are going within finals uh, for their club is great. It's been six years since you last featured in, in finals with the Fremantle Lockers back in 2015. Do, does that keep driving you? As you get a year older, do you make yourself mindful that you're not reminding yourself that the end is closer than the start, so the opportunities might be limited? Yeah, and I guess all that comes back to just trying to make the most of every you know, you know every session, every preseason, every game. Um, as you mentioned, Fremantle have been out of the finals for a few years now, and Personally, it's something that it still really drives me to try and um, you know, push our club back into the finals frame. We were around the mark a little bit this year, um, which was the first time in, in a few years, really. So, um, But we failed a few tests this year when we were, you know, had the opportunity to cement a, a top eight spot. So, um, you know, those kind of learnings and you know, disappointments, I think, really help fuel and drive the group. And, and me in particular, um, particularly in our off-season program, once that kicks in, 
that's something I find myself thinking about quite a lot um, in the middle of you know, 10 or 12K running sessions. <laughs> I'd imagine the mind would wander. So if you were to try to put your finger on one or two areas where you feel like the Dockers just have to improve to take that next step, what would you say it is? Um, well, as simple as it sounds, it's about executing the fundamentals and, and basics of our game, I, say, I guess. It's um, it's looking after the ball when we've got it, not giving it back as much as we did this year, you know, coming out of stoppage or, or contest wins and, um, and then really simply trying to kick straight uh, in front of goals. We were uh, quite horrendous in that area this year, quite often kicking a lot more points than we did goals within games. And, you know, a lot of those were, were quite achievable and quite gettable goals and ultimately cost us a couple of games, I think. Um, you know, just that basic fundamental on its own. Yeah, your, your stats from a personal point of view are almost as good as back in 2015. You averaged over 25 disposals. You played every game. When you've been around for as long as you have, are exit meetings similar or are there always points in which you can get better at? Oh, they're always looking for something to improve on and areas that um, you know need, need a bit of more attention and more care. And yeah, So the exit meetings are always um, you know, areas for self-reflection and self-improvement. Um, I'm never 100% satisfied with um, you know, any kind of output or any particular game or season that I've had to date. So, yeah, I'm always looking for ways to improve and, and sometimes that's physical, sometimes that's mental, sometimes that's how you know, I'm helping to educate others. So um, there's always a bucket to be filled. And what about your position within the team, within the club? Um, is it something, I know there's a lot of players that say you realise when the game has gone past you or there's a moment where you think all of a sudden, oh, maybe I can't do the things that I used to do. Does it get harder to wait until the end of the season to make those decisions or are they consistent conversations you have throughout the year? Yeah, with myself and uh, Peter Bell and Justin Longmuir over the last couple of years now, we've been together. Um, those conversations have been ongoing and really transparent. Um, fully, I'm fully aware of, you know, the club's direction and, and their positioning with, you know, the list and looking ahead and, and trying to safeguard their playing future and into the future. And I certainly don't want to handicap that in any way, but um, I'm really keen to, you know, play for as long as I can, as long as I'm contributing on field. I've said that all the way throughout. So um, that's my singular um, focus, I guess, or most important focus individually is uh, to ensure that I'm, I'm physically preparing myself to be able to do that. It's been such a unique year. No crowds for some games, constant changing of the schedule, um, COVID protocols. You achieved two very special milestones, a 350-game milestone, and then obviously surpassing Matthew Pavlidge as the game's record holder at Fremantle. One of them, you had no crowds. One, you were able to have a select um, family and friends who were able to attend. Has that allowed you to reflect a little bit more on your career to where you've got to today? Yeah, I think so. Those um, When those milestones pop up, it's not something that I ever really think about, you know, individualising uh, my career, I guess, and what I've been able to achieve throughout my years in the AFL. But um, these milestones come up and, and it is a chance to reflect. And um, what I find myself thinking on mostly is, you know, the people who helped me throughout my journey, right from obviously my family, mum and dad in the early years, but, you know, junior coaches and um, support staff around junior and local clubs back in Seymour and the Murray Bush Rangers in particular and, um, I guess the, particularly this year, the 350th, um, that really sunk sunk in pretty deep because, um, yeah, we got shifted up to the Gold Coast pretty late um, against Sydney and, um, you know, there's a, a few fixture changes in amongst that um, in that week where um, if it had been, I think early in that week was we're going to play in Geelong and so I had a huge contingent of friends and family kind of lined up. Yeah, we'll come definitely and then, you know, the late change into a – environment where you know no one was able to get to and and that kind of outside of football support um wasn't able to be there to kind of 
commemorate and celebrate the day with me. So um, that one in particular, um, in reference, I guess, to my 300th, which was a huge occasion and had a heap of my entire family flew over to Perth for it and had a heap of friends who come over for it as well. And it was a really great week of, um, you know, celebrating, you know, all of us and the time and effort that's gone into it. So, yeah, I guess that's what really um, struck home with, you know, those milestones around those couple of weeks this year. The voice of David Mundy with you on ABC Sport. Do you feel like there's been a key? I mean, the $64,000 question, what has been the magic ingredient for your success to have such longevity in a, a tough industry and to perform consistently for such a long time? Yeah, I don't think there's a silver bullet, um, you know, which identifies, you know, a key critical element that I've focused on or been particularly good at. Um, I think I've obviously been very lucky with injury and, um, you know, form and things like that throughout. But, um, you know, doing the little things well, um, executing basics on repeat for 18 years is a really difficult thing to do. And I feel like I've been able to do that to the point now where I um, really understand, you know, both my game but my body and, week to week what I need to do and shift slightly to you know, best prepare myself to be able to execute on game day. That coupled with you know, a never-ending desire to improve and get better at the things I'm, I'm lacking in or even the things I'm really good at and trying to always improve that and um, trying to you know, incorporate that into the team setting is, um, is a great challenge. And what about in terms of switching off? It's a footy-mad state per two teams, so obviously – when you do lose a derby or you've been on a run like the Fremantle Dockers were, it's hard to find some, I suppose, space and, and quiet time just to reflect and think upon it and find sense in the madness. Yeah, I, I guess um, coming from a small country town, I'm still really connected back home, um, obviously friends and family in the area. And um, so I've never really got caught up in the, I guess, hype of it all. Even after the performances, it's, I find it really easy to, I guess, ignore or shut out the really positive um, things that come out when you know the team or an individual plays well, um, and so then the other side of that coin, when it's you know not so positive and not so um, celebratory, it's not, I don't find it too difficult to shut those noises out. And um, you know, I've got a young family in Perth now, and um, so there's always something going on, always something taking um, attention and, and focus away from football, which is um, I guess a good thing at times. So you mentioned a young family, uh, three kids, is that right? Yeah, three, eight, six, and um, three years old. And how um, how do their lives um, similar to yours? I mean, you spoke about growing up as a young boy in Seymour. I've got no doubt you would have kicked the footy with your dad at the front. Are there similarities with one of your young kids? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, Hudson, my six-year-old in particular, um, really loves it. Um, he's started Kick this year and um, yeah, absolutely loves running around and, and playing any kind of um, sport, whether it be football, soccer, or basketball, tennis. Um, he really enjoys it and yeah it's always uh, pestering me to go and have a kick which is really great and uh, even just when I get to pick him up from school I always take a footy with me and he um, takes it and automatically charges off to the goals on his school oval so um, he's really easy in that sense and um, my eldest boy Finn he's, um, he, he likes it as well he really enjoys the um, you know the social side and hanging out with his mates and playing footy with his mates um, side of football at the moment he doesn't have that burning passion yet but um yeah it's really nice to be able to you know, muck around with those guys in particular and um have a bit of fun and kick the footy i saw on instagram you've obviously had to do the the father responsibilities as a goal umpire from various times and helping around the team but was there a moment we had to say to finn when it was pouring with rain mate just keep warm you know this is what happens in footy <laughs> <laughs> yeah well as, yeah as all parents are probably aware um particularly 
under eight in junior football can get a bit lonely sometimes in the full forward. And um, yeah, that particular day was freezing cold and um, absolutely belting with rain. And yeah, Finn was positioned at full forward and his team this year isn't that strong. They haven't kicked many goals for the year, actually. He's, uh, they've really battled, but he's really good at holding his position and not getting drawn into the ball. So yeah, on this particular day in the first half, I don't think the ball made it into the forward line in the first half. And as a result, he'd done hardly any running and he's got no body fat running whatsoever. So he was actually shivering and blue in the lips and uh, wanting to come off and, and um, you know, have a bit of a spell. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's very determined, Finn, and he never gives up. And, uh, yeah, to his credit, he, I guess, hung in there and had a bit of a dip in the second half and got, got around the ball a little bit more, which was great. But, <laughs> yeah, to share those kind of moments with him and the goal on poem, which you brought up, is it's something I, I really cherish and, um, you know, understanding that what my mum and dad, dad in particular, sacrificed, you know, for me growing up and how much I pestered him when he came home from work for a kick up, trying to really cherish those moments and, um, yeah, being away every second week, yeah, we miss more than we get. So um, just trying to make the most of those times. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, David Mundy's with us on ABC Sports. So if you take us back to the start of your journey, you grew up in Seymour, 95 kilometres north of Melbourne. Um, your parents, no doubt, would have done a lot of kilometres in your footy career. Uh, did you grow up in a, a house of girls? And I read you were a Geelong fan growing up. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, grew up with three sisters, so I was always uh, picked on and bullied as a young boy, but I was the favourite of mum and dad, being the only boy. Um, I'm happy to say that now. Um, but yeah, grew up a Geelong supporter. I can remember the day um, my dad barracks for Geelong. He was born and grew up in Geelong, and uh, my mum was a Collingwood supporter. Uh, and I remember the day the family sat down to watch a Geelong-Collingwood game, and uh, at the start of it, I hadn't really picked a side at this stage. I was still kind of just, um, yeah loving footy and playing sport and I remember the game started and dad leans over to me and says whoever wins this that's who you'll barrack for isn't it and I just <laughs> threw away yeah no worries and so Geelong ended up winning that game and um yeah pestered dad to have a kick after the game outside out the back and um yeah from that moment on I was a Geelong fan I was I remember growing up kicking the ball to myself from the nature strips and I was always playing alongside Gary Ablett and Billy Brownless and, and taking hangers on them and, and winning the game with after the goals, after scoring goals. So, um, yeah, that was really nice. And, um, yeah, as a part of growing up, um, Seymour was in the almost the most southern, you know, part of the Murray Bush Rangers catchment in the TAC Cup. So um, that meant, you know, home training sessions were in Shepparton, which was in an hour north, or Wangaratta, which was an hour and a half north. And, um, and then the closest home game in the Murray Bush Rangers was, yeah, again in Shepparton or Wangaratta or even further north. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of kilometres in the car. And as I mentioned before, Dad in particular, um, you know, sacrificed a lot of his time and energy to, you know, get me to those training sessions and games and things like that. And would you get down to Melbourne to go to the MCG or more often would you listen or watch on the TV? Uh, a bit of both, yeah. We always made it down for a few games uh, throughout the year. We um, made it down to Kittany Park a couple of times a year. And I can remember on the uh, opposite side of the interchange bench where they've got their, their new stand, it used to be about four rows of um, just bench seating and then standing room behind that. Uh, and so we used to go down the night before and stay at one of dad's, um, my dad's auntie's places, which was co- close to Kittany Park and um, you know rock up at 8 o'clock in the morning um, to line up for general admission, and uh, our job was to carry as many blankets as we could, <laughs> get through the gates, and then run to the um, seating on that wing and lay out our blankets for about five or six people. 
uh, watch the curtain raiser and um, yeah, then watch our beloved Geelong go to work. <laughs> we have called from various times. The members trying to get on grand final day and Flemington when they're trying to get their preferred seats. There are certainly some some privileges if you can get the, the seats which your family have grown used to. Um, from a family point of view, what type of kid were you growing up? Uh, always very active. Um, Mum uh, mentioned in one of my um, uh, milestone videos that was put together this year that um, in grade two, uh, my teacher could always tell what um, season it was or what sporting season it was because walking across the classroom for whatever reason, I'd either be shadow kicking a football or shadow bowling a cricket ball. <laughs> um, so, yeah, always loved, uh, you know, sport, um, anything active and, and, yeah, I grew up playing whatever I could really. So, um, yeah, probably a nuisance to my sisters and my, my parents in particular, but, um, yeah, just always active and, and loving um, playing sport. So whose number was on the back of your Geelong jumper and were you a batsman or a bowler? Uh, I had uh, Gary Ablett, number five, on the yeah. back, I think, along with probably every other Geelong fan at the time. But, um, yeah, loved Gary Hocking and uh, Paul Couch, Billy Brownless, um, you know, Barry Stone and these kind of guys. Yeah, heartbreaking the early 90s grand finals in our household. We uh, <laughs> used to deck our house out or our front window, at least out in um, you know, Geelong coloured um, memorabilia and streamers and things like that. And yeah, that was so sad moments after um, West Coast got the chocolates in those games and uh, having to take it all down. My, uh, I've got my two most proud, I guess, cricketing memories or achievements are an under-16 grand final win, which um, I'm a handful, still really great mates with a handful of guys who played in that team, and, and we bring that up every couple of years and talk about <laughs> how great that win was. Uh, and as a 17-year-old, I played a handful of um, A-grade games in the Seymour District Cricket League, and uh, every time I went to bat, I hit a six, so I was very proud of that. David Mundy's with us on ABC Sports. And if it wasn't footy, what would have it been, do you think, for you? Did you have a, a job before you got drafted? No, I, I um no, I'm I'm not too sure to be honest. I was a very average high school student. I was um, too preoccupied with um, the Mobile Strangers program and, and trying to play football and um, sport, cricket, basketball, and all these things. And um, yes, I was a very average high school student. Um, and so, what I would have been, I'm not too sure. I um actually after I got drafted, I had to wait a week to move over because I'd only just finished high school and um, our graduation was the following weekend and so uh, Fremantle allowed us to stay an extra week to attend our graduation and, and say you know a final goodbye to you know the area and my friends and uh, my school year so um, yeah it took me a long time to get back into anything academic but uh, I've since gone on and completed an undergraduate and honours program and I'm pretty happy with uh, my achievements in that field. So what have you studied you did marine and environmental studies is that right? Yeah, so I did a, a marine and environmental undergraduate um, and then moved straight into a, um, an honours thesis on, on abalone growth in um, Augusta, um, which I've recently um, completed, submitted, and uh, in the process of getting a paper published out of that in a scientific journal. So, um, yeah, hopefully soon I'll be a, a, scientifically, um, a scientific author. Uh, published in a in an art in a journal, so that'd be really nice. And what was it that swung you down that path? Uh, I got to the point where I um, off field needed to, to you know engage in something. I, I tried a few different things that I um, didn't like or, or couldn't see myself going through with, and um, so I had had really lost or not found my focus. I think it's an easy thing to do for guys coming in because our dream growing up for a lot of us is to play AFL football and 
it's quite easy to be consumed by that um, once we, when you get into the program. But um, at the time, and then at the time, I'd recently got my um, scuba diving ticket, and I was meeting some new people in that area, and um, I was just talking to one of them one day, and a friend of theirs had just completed the marine science um, program at Murdoch University, and um, yeah, recommended that I have a go at it, and um, yeah, so I, I kind of just jumped into it without any great thought of, you know, future career pathways or planning or anything like that. I just thought I have to do something and this kind of interests me and um, I'm kind of keen to, you know, test myself. So um, jumped in and, yeah, haven't regretted it since. You mentioned Fremantle selected you with pick 19 back in 2003. Uh, The draft was a bit different then. There was obviously no TV. And what were you doing and how did you find out you were going to Fremantle? Had you been to Perth before? I'd never been to Perth, no. And, yeah, the draft was a very different process back then. Um, particularly for me, I wasn't invited to draft day or anything like that. But um, I found, I was woken up by a text message from um, a Mobile Changes teammate, Kane Tanase, who had earlier been drafted to Geelong. Text message read something like, um, congratulations, mate, off to Fremantle with um, Dunny, Riley Dunn, one of our um, other uh, Mobile Changes teammates. And, um, yeah, I was still three-quarters asleep as I was reading this and it didn't really – register with me and after a minute or two of really thinking about what the text message said it kind of sunk in and I was like oh my god I've been drafted how cool is this <laughs> but I remember walking out uh, out of my bedroom to the kitchen uh, living area and my dad was sitting at the kitchen bench trying to tune a radio to the AFL draft and find the channel and I told him I've been drafted by Fremantle with Riley Dunn and um, yeah he the look on his face I'll never forget it it was um, yeah he was absolutely over the moon he'd invested as much as I had uh, in my journey up to that point. Um, and, yeah, so he was absolutely over the moon. And uh, from there I walked into my mum's bedroom um, her, and she's a night shift nurse worker and she'd worked the night before and so she was asleep and I, uh, I went in and woke her up and, and told her the news and her initial reaction was exactly the same, just over the moon, excited, happy for me and us. Uh, but then that was really quickly replaced with um, tears gushing down her face. Um, yeah, and that continued at the airport in particular every time <laughs> I had to say goodbye for the next 15 years, I think. So, yeah, that, that's really memorable that day. What was your mindset back then? Were you excited about the opportunity of playing AFL footy and, and travelling to a new city? Were you, were you scared about leaving home? And how did the Fremantle Footy Club back then compare to what it is today? Yeah, well, um, I think I was – I guess I was a little bit ignorant at the time of how big a move it actually is – and was at the time in that draft, I was drafted with, as I mentioned, um, Riley Dunn, but another good mate, Ryan Murphy, who I was um, teammates with, with Vic Country in that year and um, roommates with at the draft combine of that year. And we're still really good mates now. Um, Adam Campbell, who was another Vic Country teammate. Then we had uh, Paul Darfield, Michael Johnson, Michael Warren, um, Brett Peake. You know, so we had about um, 10 or 11 of us in our draft cohort. So I think, Having so many guys in a similar boat, particularly Riley Dunn, Ryan Murphy, and Adam Campbell, who were coming over from Victoria, took the, I guess, the shock or the, um, you know, the initial, oh my God, what are we doing kind of feeling out of it because we were all pretty um, close. We'd, we'd known each other for a little while prior to being drafted and moving over, and we we're all kind of going through the same thing at the same time. It's only on reflection as I look back now and talking to you know, young guys being drafted over here now that it, it is a big move, particularly out of high school and away from friends and family and those networks. So, But, yeah, at the time it was, it was very different, uh, different kind of feeling. We had um, Lee Walker in particular was a, the welfare guy at the time and, and he was great. I remember he picked us up in a little minibus from the airport and took us for a quick tour around the major sites of 
you know, Perth and Fremantle and around the river and showed us his best surfing spots and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a really welcome um, welcome into the Fremantle Football Club and, and life in Western Australia. You spent your first year in Perth playing for Subiaco and was a part of the Lions Premiership side. Obviously, getting that opportunity to play in success, having spent so much time in your junior footy playing in successful teams, did that help you to understand the standards you need to get to to be consistent at AFL level? Oh, I think it was, a, it was again, a really big shock. I'd, um, I played a handful of senior games for Seymour Lions over the two years prior to being drafted and you know, so kind of had a little bit of exposure of playing against uh, men. Um, but yeah, moving moving into state, playing, uh, training with Fremantle, and going on the weekends and playing with Subiaco was um, was had its own difficulties, obviously, with trying to um, incorporate myself into that playing group and and try and work hard and you know buy into their program and not be seen as you know, an entitled draftee just coming in and getting a role given to him on game day and, and you know trying to move on beyond that club. Um, as quick as you can. I was really trying to build relationships and friendships within that group was um, was a big priority of mine and, and was difficult at different stages. But, yeah, to move into a club like Subiaco, which, um, yeah, we're just beginning to become a really powerful club. That was that year was their first premiership of their first um, three-peat, which uh, I think helped me, I guess, assimilate into, you know, the move over and, and coming over and playing for a team like that and getting wins on the weekend, I think, helped with the, you know, the feeling of isolation and homesickness being away from friends and family a fair bit. So, um, yeah, it was a really great year. I still are good friends with a lot of guys in that team and in that era. And, um, yeah, we had our um, grand final reunion quite a few years ago now. But, yeah, catching up with those guys is still a lot of fun. And did you suffer from much homesickness when you were trying to get used to the Perth lifestyle? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I certainly had moments where um, in that year my um, my grandfather passed away and and so having that happen while I was over here was really difficult. And, you know, midweek I flew home uh, for his funeral and um, it was, I think that was one of the hardest flights coming back. Um, obviously a grieving family and, and having to leave them to kind of come back over here and continue my, my job, I guess. And that followed by probably my worst game I've ever, ever played and, and a really great Peter, um, Peter German bake after the game uh, was probably the the moment that I look back on and think that was my hardest period. But I was I was really fortunate, I guess, in my second year to you know, establish myself in the AFL team and um, on the back of that get to see my family arguably every second week um, in Melbourne games or, or East Coast games, and my, my mum and dad in particular drive or fly to most of those games so yeah I think on reflection I would say I didn't suffer from homesickness a whole lot there were certainly moments where um where I did but um yeah I had a, a pretty good support network over here anyway and yeah managed to see my family enough the evergreen David Mundy is my guest on Clinch's Corner Fremantle midfielder uh, you played finals in your second season losing to Adelaide in a qualifying final at Footy Park you then defeated Melbourne in a semi-final and eventually lost to Sydney in the prelim. He played with some pretty good Fremantle names of that era. Troy Cook, Peter Bell, Josh Carr, Jeff Farmer, of course, Matthew Pavlich, Aaron Sanderlands, and your coach now, Justin Longmuir. So what are your memories of that Fremantle era? Yeah, I, I remember it was 2006. We um, played Sydney in the prelim and they went on and lost to West Coast in the grand final in that year. Um, and I remember at that time thinking, um, you know, it was a, a really big, missed opportunity with West Coast at that time were obviously a really great side and uh, you know driven by an absolutely elite midfield but in 2006 we'd beaten them in both of the of the derbies that year and um, the Carr brothers in particular were um, 
um, instrumental in those games. And, yes, yeah, so I remember walking away from the prelim and, and West Coast had won their prelim and got through. And, and so the, the feeling of, oh, if we'd only got it done, we'd have a really great shot at um, in a grand final was, um, you know, was, I guess the biggest feeling walking away from that prelim. Um, my memories of those times were uh, Matthew Pavlich was an absolute mountain of a man and, and a player. And, you know, any time it felt like we were – struggling or in trouble he'd just bob up and kick a goal out of midfield or managed to kick eight in a game or something like that it felt like on repeat and he was absolutely huge and um, guys like Peter Bell and Sean McManus, Troy Cook, Robbie Hadrill um, were really great teammates to play with they were really seasoned um, AFL hardened bodies and as a young fella coming through they gave me a lot of support and a lot of encouragement um, and made me feel like I was a part of it and and, re- and really helped me I guess uh, assimilate into you know an AFL type of game where you know it moves really quickly and um, can sometimes be quite confrontational and, and physical so um, yeah there's some really great memories and some really great um, moments within games in particular that really spring to my mind. I'm fortunate to work with Adam Ramanaskis most Saturdays on our ABC call he obviously played with Damien Hardwick and says Damien Hardwick the coach is so far removed from Damien Hardwick the player who hated team meetings and didn't want to do extras and all that sort of stuff what was Justin Longmuir the player like compared to now being your coach? Yeah, he was um, – Justin was um, obviously a very talented high, high-end draft pick. And by the time I'd got to Fremantle, um, his body and his knee in particular was you know, already starting to fail him. And so, um, you know, even amongst his um, physical battles with trying to get his body right and things, I, I remember a couple of games in particular where, um, you know, you could see he's obviously impacted by his knee and hobbling around and – um, but just had absolutely monumental, huge games. And um, he's a bit of a larrikin off the field as well. Um, got a really dry, witty sense of humour. And um, that certainly still seeps through on occasion in, in team meetings. And um, you know, quite often likes to start his meetings with a joke. Um, and that sometimes bombs out. But I think that just <laughs> encourages him all the more. Uh, David Money's with us on ABC Sport. It was reported that sort of around the 2008-2010 period, you sort of had conversations with your family about whether you wanted to stay in Perth or whether you wanted the possibility maybe to play your footy back in Victoria and be closer to your family. How, how close did you get to entertaining the idea of coming back home? Yeah, there's been a couple of moments throughout my career where um, I guess for personal um, growth and development, I've always considered um, whether coming or moving back to Victoria in particular and being close to friends and family um, would be you know, a good thing for me. Um, I love what I do. I love the Fremantle Football Club and ultimately all those um, discussions or decisions have always boiled down to um, where's the best place for me to you know, play my best football and um, clearly history shows that every time I've come to the conclusion that that's at Fremantle and um, I, wouldn't have ch- I wouldn't change those decisions um, you know, on reflection or, or for anything in the world. So um, I, I consider myself extremely fortunate to be able to have represented Fremantle, um, you know, so often and, and over a long period of time and, and hopefully to a, a relatively high level. So, but yeah, I've always considered um, what's best for, for me, both you know, as a footballer and I guess holistically as a family person. You won the best and fairest back in 2010. It wasn't a bad year for you on a personal level as well, was it? You met your, your wife, Sally, and got engaged. How did you meet uh, Sal and the influence she's obviously had on, on your life in deciding to stay in WA and build your future there? Yeah, yeah, obviously a huge um, – she's been a huge support network for me and her and her family in WA in particular. Um, we met in 2006. Where, um, she was turn, turning on her 21st birthday, actually, and um, just out one night. 
Um, I think we'd played a pre-season game against Port Adelaide at Fremantle Oval that day. And uh, Marcus Drummond kicked four or five goals. Uh, one really crazy one from the pocket in particular springs to mind. Uh, but, yeah, we just met and hit it off and, um, yeah, have been together ever since. And, um, yeah, as, as I said, her, her family over here have been a terrific support network, particularly since we've had kids and things like that. So, um, but, yeah, she's always been um, really open to, you know, whatever's best for, for my football career, I guess, whether that be, you know, the times we've discussed moving into state. Um, she's been really open to it. Um, the times when I come home grumpy after a poor performance, she's really supporting and um, really happy to, you know, listen to me if I need to vent and, and you know, to bear the burden of my um, disappointment sometimes. And, um, yeah, she's always there to help me celebrate the good times as well. So I uh, consider myself incredibly fortunate. We got married the following year in 2011 and coming up to our 10-year anniversary uh, in November this year. It can be an incredibly selfish life, I suppose, when you're trying to prioritise your well-being and making sure you recover right and do the right things, eat right. What's been a couple of the sacrifices that the family's had to make to ensure that your playing career can continue on? Oh, I think it's just it's the little things. Like Obviously, throughout the year, particularly now with young kids and, and kids of school age, um, a lot of our friends um, through the schooling network are always ducking off in WA, going north in the you know, winter holidays and things like that. And um, so those big sacrifices obviously are, are difficult for uh, at times for Sal and, and the kids when you know the people that we hang out with the most and, and our kids' mates are off going on holidays. We have to kind of bunker down in Perth and um, just kind of go about trying to maintain our routine as best we can. But um, the little things I think are the ones are the biggest ones where you know I'll come home and I'll be really sore and not be able to really do anything the next day sometimes and, and Sal really bears the burden of parenting you know three young children and, and things like that and um, you know from that kind of scale all the way up to you know sacrificing um, you know going out to celebrate you know friends birthdays or, or things like that or just catching up with people going out for dinner you know because they might fall on not before games or, or things like that you know there's there's a varied response i guess of, of sacrifices that we need to make but you know we've been happy to do that throughout the journey if we fast forward to 2013 Fremantle playing in their first and only grand final so far since entering the competition in 1995 what memories stick in your mind i know sort of asking the question that's not exactly the the memories that you'd like to have from featuring in a grand final but what did you learn out of that experience of playing in the, the final game of the season um well I think what, what our group learned was that we were capable. I think um, the couple of years following that, we were, we were still a very good team, obviously, but we'd, it just felt like we're getting injuries um, at the wrong time of the year. So um, 2015, we bombed out in a prelim again, and, and in that one, Nat had broken his leg and all that kind of stuff. But, in, yeah, 2013, I think the, the biggest mem- uh, biggest you know, learning from that was probably similar um, – I guess to Fremantle of 2021 is that, you know, basics and fundamentals can really get you a long way in football and, and being able to execute those under pressure on the biggest stage um, really does count for a lot. And I, I remember early in that game, we had a few opportunities to hit the scoreboard where we, we failed to do so. And um, Hawthorne, to their credit, they were a great side. Um, they took their opportunities, but also really um, managed to own the ball quite well. We were, the Fremantle Dockers of 2013 were a fairly like manic pressure press team, and um, the week before against Sydney, in particular in, in our home prelim, uh, by quarter time we'd ice the game because we were able to really get after them, pressure the ball, pressure Sydney, and turn the ball over and, and score off the back of that. Um, and so yeah, early in the grand final, it just felt like 
um, Hawthorne were, were really capable and really adept at um, just kicking the ball around us a little bit and just owning the ball for a while and taking, I guess, making us burn a few, a few of our fuel tickets. So, um, But to our group's credit, I guess, in that game in particular, we, we really rallied and got really close in the end and uh, I think lost by you know, 12 or 13 points or something in the, at the end of the day. And, and so obviously a, a pretty close grand final ultimately. But, yeah, looking back on it and thinking back on it, I can't help but think that we were smashed. It's a, it's a really bizarre feeling to, you know, to marry up your, your feelings and how how you look back on it and how you remember it to, you know, the actual scoreline. So, yeah, certainly it was a disappointing day, um, you know, for the Fremantle Football Club, but, um, you know, we're still striving to get back there. Were you superstitious, nervous leading into the game? Did you dream of what might eventuate if it all went according to plan? Yeah, I, even um, even now for regular games, you can't help but, you know, dream and hypothesise and think about what might be if, you know, a particular outcome happens in, a, in any kind of game and, Certainly, grand final week is something very, very different um, to anything I've experienced outside of it. Um, you know, the, the people at training um, throughout the week, the you know, 5,000 people at the Perth airport to see us off on a Thursday, um, to see us you know, jump out of a bus and walk 10 metres into the terminal and get on a plane, it's, um, it, it is mind-boggling, the kind of you know, celebration of the community and um, the amount of people who really you know, got behind our our journey in that year and in that week in particular and yeah experiencing experiencing the grand final parade um, in melbourne is obviously a big thing and and then you know the, the purple walk from fed square to the game uh on game day on the saturday of entire was um incredible so yeah grand final day is unlike anything i've ever experienced and obviously ross Lyon was your coach back then there were sort of reports linking him to the carlton job it's came out over the last uh, few days that he's pulled out of that race um your experience with ross as your senior coach yeah ross came in in 2000 his first season was 2012 with us and um we'd had a a, a year racked by injury under mark harvey in 2011 and the club made the call to um change coaches obviously but ross took us straight back to the finals in 2012 and and then obviously there's the grand final in 2013 um, and so um, Ross was exactly what we needed at that time. He was, um, you know, the best tactical game day coach um, that I've experienced. Um, he got the best out of our group, absolutely. And, um, yeah, took us to some pretty high highs, which was really nice. And a couple of the legends of the Fremantle Footy Club who you played alongside, you mentioned Matthew Pavlidge earlier, feeling like he could just swing games off his own boot. Did the group felt like it walked taller with him as captain of the side? Yeah, he. I was really lucky to experience two great captains in Peter Bell and Matthew Pavlich, and yeah, certainly those guys were figures of inspiration both on the field but also off it. You know, their attention to detail in the mundane, you know, habitual things of a, of a Monday to Friday AFL footballer were absolutely first class, and I think reflected the kind of careers that they went on to have. And um, yeah, certainly Matthew through that kind of the period where he was transitioning from a midfielder to a key forward. You know, I say it so blasely because I kind of was there with him throughout. But to see what he was able to do in both areas of the field as a midfielder, but then as a pure key forward, um, is remarkable. And how does he compare with someone like a, a Nat Fife as captain? Obviously, Brownlow's in in two years, 2015, 2019. So an incredibly talented individual player, but still uh, collectively trying to drive the best standards out of the group. Yeah, and again, Nat, Nat shares in those same characteristics as, as Peter and, and Matthew in terms of. You know, the dedication and the attention to detail that he puts into his own preparation is absolutely first class. And, you know, early days with Nat, 
that was probably one of his biggest detractors, I guess, because he'd almost get lost from the group with his own individual focus. Um, but over the last you know, five or six years in particular, he's really grown in that area and he's becoming a really great captain and, and captaining and leading a really young group at the moment, um, you know, remarkably well. David Mundy is our guest on ABC Sport. So you've seen the evolution of the game come from, I mean, the early 2000s to where it stands now and it feels like it's changed so much over the decades from uh, team defences to the professionalism of the, the competition and the media demands of players now. Do you ever sort of pinch yourself as to how different it is now to how you started? Yeah, I'll get asked this question a fair bit, actually. And um, I actually get lost in trying to think about, well, how specifically has the game changed? Because I guess you get so focused in and so honed in on what we're doing at the moment and even um, you know, up to five or, or ten years ago. Um, but think back when when I started in 2005 um, playing for Fremantle, uh, I'd be really hard-pressed to tell you exactly how the game has changed, like in particular. Um, obviously it has in a really dramatic fashion and and it's quite a different spectacle than it was uh, almost 20 years ago. So I always find that really bizarre to try and think about. We've seen players come and players go at at Fremantle. I guess Adam Chair is a name that has been mentioned that he might be departing at season's end. Lockie Neal and Brad Hill and Ed Langdon and a couple of players in in recent seasons who have departed. There's sort of been a notion that perhaps the South Australian clubs and the Western Australian clubs need to target kids that have grown up in that environment because they're, they're less reluctant to leave. I guess you're the perfect example of someone who's come to WA and made it home. So what do you feel like the key is to for some of these clubs in South Australia and Western Australia to try and retain this top-end talent? Yeah, well, I think the focus in particular in the last two years under Justin um, for our group and our club has been to uh, make it the best environment to you know, achieve high standards and, and high results. Um, but then make it a really inclusive, you know, relationship-driven network of, you know, people of a similar mindset um, to really try and drive the club forward. I think we're, we're taking really great strides in that. You know, and I think ultimately if you create the right environment, you'll draw the right kind of people and retain the right right kind of people who are really invested in driving your club forward because I think, um, you know, if you look at the national competition, I, I, I think it's obvious that the West Australian clubs in particular, but even to a lesser extent the Queensland clubs, have a, a larger burden in terms of travel and, and things like that. And, and it does make it harder within the season and, and trying to stack games and onto games and seasons onto seasons. So, um, you know, we, we do face a couple of extra hurdles, but as I said, we're just trying to create the right environment where uh, we can achieve some sustained success. You became the third player to surpass 300 from Western Australia. Um, if you thought about the amount of hours you spent in the air or travelling between uh, home to venues, I'm sure it would do your mind in. Has there been tricks along the way to keep yourself occupied when you are away from home? Yeah, there's a, well, I was studying for a long time. To get through my undergrad took about nine years, so there's always stuff to do um, in a hotel room um, during those periods of time. But, um, again, well, when we um, travel, you know, you're in game mode almost, so you're you find it you're getting down the funnel I guess of your focus leading into a game and your preparation into a game so um, there's always those kind of focuses and physical necessities take precedent I guess on those kind of days but um, again it's like any job I guess you get caught in the habitual nature of it and what you what you have to do to do your job right and to the best of your ability and you just keep doing that as best you can and, and with as much detail as you can muster so yeah the travel component has evolved over my years from um, you know, sitting up, up the back of the plane trying to stretch out as best we can to you know we're afforded uh, a bit of luxury now with some business class seats and um, you know spare seat between guys um, in economy class so 
Um, it has changed a little bit. I think it can get um, better. I think the stands can get better, and and we can move forward in that in that kind of area um, to make it a yeah you know, to or to lessen the competitive disadvantage that West Australian and Queensland clubs go through. But um, yeah, it's certainly improved in my time. The voice of David Mundy with you on ABC Sport. I asked you about Matthew Pavlidge and Nat Fife. You captained the side in the year in between those two and their reigns. Um, what was your approach as captain and how come it only ended up being one year that you held the mantle? Yeah, so I guess after the 2015 season, um, we didn't have a whole lot of um, change from playing with perspective. We were um, really adamant that we would just re-gear, re-shift um, re- and, and launch another assault into into the finals, hopefully in 2016. And I remember we're going into, it's always been a player-driven vote and we're going into our um, to vote the captain and leadership group of, of the, that particular year on this particular day in our meeting room. And um, unbeknownst to me, but Matthew got up at the front at the start and said um, he's really cherished being the AFL captain, but um, was stepping away from that role. Happy to be a part of the leadership group, but wanted the um, uh, wanted to kind of lessen, I guess, um, the requirements on him as a player leading into that season, um, which was ultimately his last. So. But throughout the preseason, I think as a club, we kind of missed the trick a little bit with the um, with how we prepared our, ourselves for that season. And obviously, record shows that we had a really ordinary season. You know, half halfway through the year, we had those conversations about you know, do we expose young talent or do we keep pushing on? Kind of conversations came about. And at the end of that year, um, the club made the call to. Um, move on from a couple of really great club stalwarts, um, guys like Tendal Mzungu, Matt DeBoer, uh, Michael Barlow, um, you know, guys like that who were possibly not you know our best players, but were real heart and soul, you know, guys of the change room type players, and um, you know that that had a big impact on the club and and on the playing group. And um, at the end of that year, there was, as I said, along with those kind of changes, there was another big influx of young um, draftees. Um, and the club really shifted its trajectory and its um, direction, I guess. And, and so on the back of that, at the player vote the following year, um, I guess that was reflected in the eventual naming of Nathan as skipper, I guess was reflective of uh, a really different playing group with different kind of ideals and, and you know, leadership aspirations or how they wanted to be led. And yeah, so Nat took up that mantle of Fremantle captain. And as I said, he's really grown into that role now where um, he's doing a great job of it. Once we get to finals footy, it always feels like, it could come down to the last kick of the match. You're fortunate enough to have had that responsibility on your shoulders. We're only going to talk about the one where you kicked it through, not the one uh, that you didn't. So just I can't remember with... that one. <laughs> From the bounce, Sandlands and Nankervis. Nankervis wins it down. The important clearance. Neil breaks away for Fremantle. Kicks into the pocket. There will oh! be more. Mundy's taken the mark. He's 30 metres out. He's on an angle. But this might be the last kick of the game. It's a situation oh. David Mundy knows. <laughs> what a finish. He has to kick the goal to win the game. He missed after the siren against the Cats. Can he kick the Dockers to victory here? Richmond leading by four points. Mundy on the approach in the left forward pocket. Kicks it, goal! Goal! They come from everywhere. It's the most splendid Mother's Day gift for every Fremantle supporting mum. It's wrapped in purple and white. 
It was a very late gift. Fremantle wins by two points at the MCG. What memories does it bring back kicking a goal after the siren, which no doubt so many kids dream of being able to do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mentioned it before, but I was one of those kids growing up always. Um, whenever a game was to be won, it was always a mark on the siren and, and kicking a goal after the siren to win it. So um, I guess to live that on the AFL stage at the MCG, you know, in front of 50,000, 60,000, however many people, was uh, was you know quite incredible and something that, yeah, whenever it's brought up, I can visualise it and remember it so vividly that, um, yeah, it was something really special. I can remember... Um, just prior to that, we'd, we were in the lead and um, I was actually sent to be a, a plus one behind the ball and um, Brandon Ellis managed to kick that goal for Richmond and, and the feeling then of, oh, no, we've let this one slip because we're up by uh, you know, a heap at the start of the last quarter. Um, that immediate feeling of, oh, no, we've let this one slip to, well, hang on, Lockie Neal's streaming out the front of a centre square bounce and he's put it in the perfect spot for me and you know, I've managed to hang on to it. Um, you know, so the... You know, the roller coaster of emotions in just that little you know, snippet of the game, you know, is quite, quite incredible and, and something you know that still brings tingles to to me thinking about. <laughs> uh, obviously, injuries are a common part of the game, but you've been lucky enough to avoid them. I think on only four occasions you played under twenty games in a season. Uh, did you get a bit lucky with the the COVID break and that allowed you to get back without missing too many games after a a bike accident? What happened? Yeah, so. Um, just before uh, Christmas um, of that year, I um, just riding my bike with my two boys down uh, Point Walter, which is not too far from where we live, and uh, they were going going at a pretty good clip, and I felt like I'd given myself enough room. But as boys do, they were kind of racing each other and arguing, and as a result, they've kind of come together and, and fallen off their bikes, gone over their handlebars, and uh, had a split-second decision to, of – do I veer and avoid my children or do I run over them and potentially cause more serious harm and injury to them? Uh, and so I've made the the wrong choice of trying to go around them and avoid them and come off my bike myself. And yeah, I got a little crack in, uh, in my leg and I actually didn't realise um, how bad it was at the time. And um, I was cut myself pretty good and it was bleeding quite a lot. And I sent a picture of it to our doctor at the time and, and said, oh, hey, mate, have a look at this. What do you reckon? And he said, oh, looks okay. Hard to tell on the phone. I'll have a look at it tomorrow uh, when you come in for training. So I thought, no worries. And um, so anyway, I managed to, uh, went on to train on it for another two weeks um, and was really struggling, obviously, to run around a whole heap, but to really get up to top end speed. And I remember coming off a couple of training sessions and being like, it's like it's just no good. Like, I don't know what what's wrong with it. Um, da, da, da. Anyway, so we ended up getting a scan of it and there was a, a little crack in there and took a little while to heal and um, had to be in a moon boot for a little while. So, um, yeah, that set me back a little bit. But in my mind, I only just missed round one of that year. <laughs> um, it was the first uh, round, yeah, 2020. The COVID had obviously struck just before and Fremantle played Essendon in, in an empty Marvel Stadium. And, um, yeah, so in my mind, I was I was absolutely cherry ripe to go for round two, had it, had it gone on the week after. But as you mentioned, yeah, COVID interrupted the AFL season and, and we got a bit longer to prepare. So I was pondering uh, before this interview, you're a very uh, lovable player for people that don't barrack for Fremantle. So how would you get on David Mundy's bad side? Imagine telling him that he can't play for a game, given your longevity and potentially a goal-kicking competition. Is that where your competitive best comes out? Uh, well, yeah, I guess it depends on who you ask. But yeah, always, <laughs> uh, I think um, I think that's another reason why I've um, lasted so long 
in the AFL system is that I, uh, by nature, am very, very competitive and my wife hates playing games. Like she won't even play Uno or um, go fish or anything at home because, um, you know, bragging rights are on, on the back of anything. And so <laughs> I really get that outlet through football. And, um, yeah, so anything like goal kicking or, or this year Fremantle had a touch Olympics where we played different handball games on a Thursday. Uh, we'll split up into teams um, earlier in the year and we went through the season and we we ended up winning gold medal in that competition this year. So I was the captain of our team at the start. So I was able to select um, similarly competitive guys in my team and um, through a few bending of the rules of no running and things <laughs> like that, we're able to get the chocolates. So it's uh yeah, very good. I'm sure a lot of our listeners in lockdown, either in Melbourne or Sydney, would feel similarities to that with a lot of uh, games going on and bragging rights high on the right. Um, David, it's been great to catch up and have a feature chat. I guess finally uh, I'd ask sort of what do you think it would mean for Fremantle to win a flag, be it in your time or or potentially after that, but for a club that for so long have desperately craved that, what would it mean for Fremantle fans to see the ultimate achieved? Clearly it will mean a lot. I think um, Fremantle people... Um, you know, has a, there's a rich WA football history behind the Fremantle Football Club, even before um, Fremantle, with um, you know, so through East and South Fremantle Football Clubs in particular. But to be the first would be a monumental achievement for all of the players and staff members and coaches and administrators involved in the Fremantle Football Club at the time. But for a supporter base and a membership base that have gone through so much um, heartache, I guess, from the early inception of the club. Um, and then, you know, riding the wave a little bit through some a few rebuilds uh, in recent memory would absolutely be phenomenal for the for the membership, for the town, for the city of Fremantle, for you know West Australian football in general. So, um, yeah, I know it's it's a really big driving motivator for a lot of the players at the moment uh, to try and drive this club to success and be a part of the first and. Um, I'm sure our fans feel the same. Is a grand final in Perth the closest we might get if we don't live in Perth to understand what a derby is like? Yeah, possibly. I think it's going to be a really great showcase. I think it'll be a really great um, snapshot into the passion that WA football holds. We saw a little bit of it with the Dreamtime game this year, which was um, you know, an incredible experience to be at. And the way the WA football community really turned out to celebrate that round in particular was, was really great. And I think the S- September football action in Perth this year will... Um, really showcase to the rest of Australia in particular you know, how much football is loved over here and what a great spectacle it will be. For listeners outside of Western Australia, what, what's the key to a derby? Obviously, Fremantle able to break West Coast's dominance this year, but um, they're always great to watch and you feel like the city rocks depending on which team's able to get on a run. Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier, but the um, you know the exposure of a two-team town is that a family is probably either West Coast or Fremantle. And and quite often, a West Coast family will have one Fremantle supporter within their family somehow, and no one actually knows how those families coexist at times, particularly in Derby Weeks. And so there's always huge rivalries, both um, you know within the football clubs, obviously, but even down to the family level in WA football community. You know, the rivalry's intense and really um, heartfelt and yeah, it's, it's a great thing to be a part of and the game's built up. From the time the games of, of the West Coast or Fremantle are finished on the weekend prior, the Derby's already been spoken up and talked about and you know the hype built throughout that week is, is really special and really great to be a part of. David Mundy from the Fremantle Football Club, my guest on Clinch's Corner. Don't forget, for any of the episodes you've missed, they're available via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts from or you can log on to the ABC website, abc.net.au forward slash grandstand. Until next time, bye for now. 